Hello and welcome to Extreme Perspectives. This is a monthly podcast created by The Sense Network to bring you conversations with people who see things differently and think differently. This podcast is for people who want to expand their mind and develop their creative intelligence. I'm your host, Jeremy Brown. For 20 years, I've been seeking out people from the edges of culture, the creators, outliers, misfits, rebels, and the crazy ones. People who want to change things and push the human race forward. In this episode of Extreme Perspectives, we head down under to Australia as I speak with hyperactive outlier and accomplished retail designer, Mark Landini. Mark channels his ADHD in a perpetual search for simplicity. This unique perspective on the world helps him to see through the facades and reveal hidden truths. As an expert in retail design, Mark believes we often see change but mistake it for progress. We are duped into believing innovation has taken place, but rather it is a change that's detrimental to both customers and suppliers. Listen in as we talk shop, from great British designers and design firms like Pentagram, to barbecues and everything that's wrong with supermarkets. Good morning, Mark. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? It's not the morning here, it's the evening. Very good. How is Australia today? Ah, beautiful. I Absolutely beautiful. It's always a pleasure. I live on a beach, as you know. Uh, every day I look at it and the ocean and it, it's a delight. Well, I always, I always open with the same question. So uh, I need you to introduce yourself, but I'm going to open by saying, Mark Landini, are you an outlier, a misfit, a rebel or a crazy one? Do you know, I had to look up Outlier. I kind of felt I knew what it was, and I think I, and I was right. Um, I, 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 I think it's very difficult to talk about yourself like that. I mean, I love talking about myself, but I think to analyse myself is much harder. So I kind of have empathy for most of those positions, and I think if you were one of them, you'd probably be certifiable. So it would be kind of weird to be that monochromatic. But I think of all of them, I'd probably... I probably gravitate mostly to the outlier one, largely because it's my natural instinct to be incredibly introverted and spend time only in small tribes um, and and be quite sort of, you know, enjoying solitude, as it were. But having said that, my job demands sort of enforced social interacting and and soapboxing. Um, So I kind of find myself... um, you know, kind of sometimes being less outlier than perhaps I would like to be. Having said that, I thought about it before we uh, were speaking, and whenever I do did or do play sport, for example, I thought that was a good way of explaining it. I, I always used to, when I played a team sport, to actually do a position that only one person could do, like I was, I was a goalkeeper, uh, or I was the wicketkeeper, or uh, I was on the right wing, which is the last down the line, you know, in rugby or whatever. Um, I always found myself in a position where uh, I was pretty much in some form of solitude. But my favourite sport was boxing, uh, in which I was in complete control and in complete solitude, uh, just for my thoughts. So I think Outlier is my favourite one. And I think it also is a good expression of our company. Because like you, I've tried to do something different uh, with the structure of the business that that I've created, and, and uh, although I came from the first publicly listed design company, and I became creative director when I was about ten, there, 
and then went to work with Terence Conran's company. I decided that I didn't actually want to run a company, but I wanted to work in it, not on it. And so I've created a company, a very, a very small company of highly skilled people who don't um, get over-promoted beyond their skill base by the time they're just beginning to learn how to be good at it. And that's largely based on the Pentagram model, which you, I'm sure you're familiar with, which is a group of senior partners that continue to work on projects with a small group of talented people who they're largely training, but also learning from. Um, and that's really the structure of our, of our business, that you, know, that you can be at the esteemed age that I am and not really been dealing with accounts or or new business pitches of some you know, magnitude that you may never get or whatever, but just doing what you want to do and, and doing it better and better each day. And um, so in that respect, our company is very different to anyone else's or, or, or anyone of the large global agencies within which we compete. And, and it, but it seems to be working. Uh, I think people seem to like that. I think people, um, large companies seem to like to work with small ones for some reason or other, or at least with, with ones that have opinions. So, so Outlier is my favourite, but Misfit definitely, and, and I think that kind of informs some part of what we're going to talk about later, but I was born um, into extreme English provincial poverty, and after a few dark years, which I can't remember, where everything was damp and cold, and dark. Uh, my mother, who was incredibly beautiful, married a very rich Italian man. And so I was, uh, at the age of about three or four, um, introduced to sort of voluptuous European wealth. And, and that's possibly why I love Australia so much, to answer your earlier question, because I feel that, you know, Australia rejects a series of social norms and embraces a much more sort of egalitarian society that I feel more comfortable in, um, having sort of straddled you know, extreme poverty and extreme wealth as a, as a child. Um, I never feel comfortable in either of those two places, but I do understand them both. Um, so a misfit, definitely, uh, without question. Um, rebel, maybe, because I have a, a very low tolerance for, for any presumption of a sort of assumed superiority. And I think that probably came from my public school education, uh, where, I was, where I was bullied. So I've become a sort of defender of bullies. And crazy one, well, I don't think so. I think everyone else is crazy. I'm pretty sane. Um, <laughs> I'm always right. Everyone else is completely bonkers, which, um, yeah, me, makes me quite practical. I think I'm a very practical person. I'm very pragmatic. Um, I'm very uh, single-minded. I'm, I, I, I suffer... A, or suffered, I think, I discovered actually, uh, late in life, ADHD, which explains a lot of things. And so I yearn for simplicity over and above almost anything else. Um, and I suppose that makes me crazy. I mean, ADHD possibly is a, is a disorder. Uh, I don't know if that makes me mad, but it's a good madness because it actually, um, you know, the antidote to it is to actually try and make things simpler. And, and I think that's why I like what you, you talked about, you know, this unthink and then rethink. And, 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 you know, we have a version of that, which is reinventing normal, which is about any problem that you're faced with or any, um, yeah, any challenge, uh, any journey that you're about to embark on. Um, you don't start at the starting point where the journey was stopped previously. 
but that you, well, as you call it, you unthink it and then you rethink it. And we call it reinventing normal because what we mean is that the starting point of yesterday is not always appropriate to be the starting point today. So you have to challenge that starting point before you actually go on any journey whatsoever. And it may well be that the journey doesn't start from where it stopped, but could start from a completely different place. And, and that's really to do with challenging something and actually trying to be intellectually curious, I suppose. And, and that's, that's where we, we start our work. And that's where I start pretty much everything that I do, I think. And I, it, it may well be a combination of all of the above. I think that's a great start, Mark. Thank you. You touched briefly on some of your early years. It would be great to understand a little bit more about your journey if you like, your creative journey that you've been on. You've, you've talked about your early years, but sort of when did you just, could, could you share a little bit more about the, the, the path that you have been on in your life? Well, I was, I was kind of asked about this the other day and I, I made up, I made something up because I couldn't think of the answer um, because I don't think people really know what, you know, how they are influenced to take a certain journey. I think it's a, a massive number of, of influencing factors. Sometimes they're obvious, other times they just sort of, you know, assume you. Um, I, I, I said that I was probably a designer because I grew up on a farm, which after my mother married this rich Italian, um, uh, he, he, he was trying to play at being an English country gentleman. He had this lovely farm in, in Tunbridge, outside Tunbridge Wells in Kent. Um, and, and on the farm, I was adopted by, by all the farm workers. And so I spent quite a lot of time kind of, you know, hanging out with them. Um, and maybe that was was interesting, but as a enormously wealthy so as a child for, who who came from extreme poverty and then was surrounded by you know really rather pleasant um, Italian billionaires, I found myself really quite alone most of my my childhood because my father was my adopted father was never really there he was always off making or looking after his money. Uh, my mother was often with him, and so I often found myself in some degree of solitude, whether looked after by the farm workers or the or the nannies or even the dogs, um, of which there was a pack. And um, and I think that those sort of early years of solitude, of sort of probably introspection prior to the time where you normally do, are introspective, um, may have encouraged some sort of degree of um, creativity because you have to amuse yourself. I certainly did a lot of things like that. And my mother probably encouraged me uh, to some degree. I think women probably played the bigger part in my life than men. Although I was educated by, by nuns, I was also educated by, by monks, Benedictine monks. Um, and so I think, uh, I think being sent to, to boarding school at the age of eight and years of bedwetting and all that kind of stuff probably toughens you up a bit um, and makes you think in a different way. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. <laughs> but I was, I was largely brought up by women. I'm, I, I was brought up by a series of nannies. I was brought up by my mother from time to time, who used to play a lot of games with us, which was interesting. I, my, probably the single biggest influence on me was living in Rome, where I was sent because I had asthma as a child. At the beginning of every holiday, I was sort of pre-sent out to spend some time with my Italian aunt, who refused to speak English to me, and used to take me to markets every day. And, and send, then send me to, on architecture tours to churches, uh, you know, at, at, a, at a ridiculously young age, um, with almost no, no instruction. And so I think growing up with her in Rome, speaking a different language, understanding some part of the side of me that, that I was adopted into, but 
never really felt comfortable with because I was, you know, in an English public school, probably grounded me in a culture that I feel most comfortable and close to, um, being, you know, the Italian side of me and, 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 and all the proportions and all the architecture and all the light and all the noise and all the chaos and all the eating and all the, all the shouting uh, and all the glamour and all the style uh, that that country, you know, is pervaded with. Um, probably made the deepest influence on me, and, and maybe that's what what led me eventually to design. But certainly, like most people my age, uh, I was in a band uh, when I was at art school because um, that's where I ended up. And I didn't have any intention of being a designer. I wanted to be a, a rock and roll star. I think if I'd stayed in Solihull, I probably would have ended up in Duran Duran. But <laughs> I, <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I, I ended up actually in a band with um, a drummer from the Damned. One of the song early songwriters of Susie and the Banshee, uh, so a kind of punk a punk pedigree, but a jazz band. And we created a, a twelve piece sort of band that was that was courted by all the, all the big big labels before we imploded because we were unable to manage ourselves. And then I spent years worrying about that, and then um, decided to be a designer. So I suppose some part of the thing that I learned all along the way, uh, particularly when being in a band. Uh, and the sort of self-promotion that was required from that and the need to kind of invent things on the fly and very much, do, you know, do-it-yourself kind of promotional activity and songwriting and all those things, um, I think informed the way I think and certainly informed the way I, I present myself um, and have some influence on me. So I think, you know, a, a fairly typical journey of a, you know, middle-class English public schoolboy, really. Uh, you mentioned DIY. I I talk about DIY culture as well, and just it's for me that you may not know what you're doing, but you just start somewhere, and you know just learning to just start and just do stuff and learn as you go along is incredible, and so much comes from from that process. And so I just wanted to zoom into that momentarily because one of the things when I heard that I mean I, I I mean when I look at DIY culture I mean for me and my generation it was very much the the whole rave generation and what came out you know there weren't independent graphic design agencies or design agencies back then it was just like big agencies and the small independents were very much that sort of DIY culture and so it sort of went from bands to sort of graphic design companies and then, you know, bigger agencies that built on that. But they were just people starting up things and doing stuff because they felt like doing it and they learned as they went along. And I think that is somehow forgotten. Everyone needs to sort of be qualified or feel they need to be qualified to do stuff. And actually, sometimes just that that sort of self-taught apprenticeship can be uh, an incredible place to start and because you just learn and it's just about drive um and sometimes i think that that is that that just gets lost that whole idea of just being able to start and do stuff gets gets so lost but it's great to hear your story about how you learn doing that through a band so i think that's like a a, a brilliant prototype for a business because it's about managing people and making up ideas and you know that what a great start but maybe maybe that's not true did you learn a lot from that well, I mean, I think anyone in my generation is very influenced by music and the ability to do it yourself. I mean, no one 
the Sex Pistols being an obvious iconic, you know, representation of that era. I mean, they only had three chords, and and most of the bands, you know, at that time were self-taught musicians, and then self-promoted themselves. And and you know, with Malcolm McLaren in the background saying that there's no such thing as bad publicity, which you know, no one had ever said before. So a lot of norms, I think, and then you know, kind of trying to break them down the hippie culture, which was embraced by your generation, again, the, the different type of drug, you know, that's a more, more relaxing uh, drug. But I think the drug culture as well, I think, was, uh, you know, quite quite important to the way that, that people uh, of my generation thought. I mean, there was a lot more amphetamines around than people care to admit, and I think that makes people quite angry. And I think angry, you know, anger is an energy. And, and, and certainly one of the things that drove me to to attempt to be in some way successful was the fear of being cold ever again. I never wanted to be cold again. You know, as a student, I lived in some of the most ridiculously uncomfortable and unsanitary and horrible places, as, as most students do. But, you know, two absolute extremes, you know, making, making them habitable in some way, shape or form was in some way creative, I suppose. Um, but not wishing to be cold again was was a really motivating factor in my life. I, mean, I never really, and maybe that's why I moved to Australia. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I think I was actually I was talking to, I was talking to Tom Dixon about it, who I know you you admire the other day, who who, who I've become very friendly with. Is my daughter's godfather uh, about how he started off, and you know he broke, he was in, he was actually uh, in another band. We both knew kind of knew each other without remembering it. Um, we shared a lot of friends, but he broke his wrist and started learning to weld to fix fix his motorbike, and he just got a lot of scrap to practice with, and that's you know, started off um, his furniture career. and And when he found out that people would actually give him a few quid for it, you know, he realised that maybe there was something in it. Yeah, I think England is also uh, a country that has always nurtured craftsmanship, and it has always nurtured starting from small and and trying to you know crawl up uh, the medieval concept of law the ladder of being you know there's always one rung that you can get up um and if you're very good at what you do and better than everyone else then maybe you can can allow to climb that rung um you know you're restricted to one rung of course in england but <laughs> you're encouraged to climb it quite aggressively well I think there was that there was that era. There was sort of David Meller, which, as a, I think, as a British designer, just doesn't get talked about enough. And also, there was Terence Conran, who you worked with, because you were creative director of Conran Design Group for yeah. How how, how long were you? Well, when did you when did you start there? What was your tenure at Conran Design? Well, I worked for Rodney Fitch, and um, and Rodney and, and Terence had a history. And um, I think one of the reasons why Terence tried to get me to work for him because it was one of those histories where they were always trying to better each other. And he tried to get me several times to go and work for him, and I kept on turning him down until he finally paid me enough money because um, he was incredibly mean uh, financially. <laughs> um, what was it like? It wasn't as much fun as I thought it would be, but I didn't really have anywhere to go after Fitch. I was creative director of, you know, the world's biggest design company by the time I was 26 or 7 or something. You know, I was a child. I knew nothing of what I was doing. And, and I thought going to Conran would, would be an interesting step insofar as he was one of my heroes. I loved, I loved his sense of style. I loved his sense of simplicity. And I thought I would learn a lot from him. I didn't actually learn very much from him at all in terms of design because he wasn't actually 
a particularly good designer. He had an incredibly good eye and a very good memory, and he was very good at putting people together, but he wasn't actually that creative. Rodney, on the other hand, was a genius um, when it came to understanding people and really loved people. And, and I think if you're a retail designer, which is what I am, you have to love people. And, and, and Terence didn't particularly love people. And, and I was surprised because I thought he would love them more because he did some wonderful things like Habitat, you know, invented, you know, pre, pre-Ikea, you know, a kind of modernist uh, furniture store, which, you know, changed the world in many ways. So I thought I would learn a lot from him. I actually found out that I learned more about business from Terence than I did uh, perhaps from Rodney, but I learned more about design and people from Rodney than I did, than I did from Terence. And, and, and my memories are much fonder of the time that I spent at Fitch than they were at Conran, which was in disarray when I got there anyway, nonetheless. Um, so so um, it was an interesting time, and both were very different. Uh, I spent three years at Conran, but I spent ten at Fitch, and, and I think I look more fondly back on the days at, at Fitch. Yeah, I think Terence Conran did change the world in terms of bringing design and just the value of design and the uh, understanding of good design and what that looks like and making it available. I think that was, um, yeah, I certainly hold him up as sort of one of my heroes or, what, you know, one of, one of the people that I admire in terms of what he did. When you, you started in the design business, were you, you know, what were you designing? Did you go straight into retail or did that come later? No, well, when the band split up, I got a job working for a decorator. It was the only job I could get. I lasted there about a year before I realised that it was was terrible. And this company called Fitch started, you know, you heard about them. They were growing really quickly and they were paying people £6,000 a year when most when most people were getting four. You know, it seemed like a really glamorous place to go. And I joined them when there was 15 people there. And literally within about two or three years, there was 300 or something. That was my that was my introduction to retail design. It was really money that took me there. It was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> way of earning, you know, about a third more than I was earning elsewhere. And it was glamorous. It was incredibly glamorous. It was the 80s. Everyone had lots of cash. Everyone had ponytails and file effects and Jean-Paul Gaultier suits, you know, even though they shouldn't really have been able to afford them or deserve them. The retail design playbook was being written at Fitch. And, and probably nowhere else. And, and so it was a, a really, really fast-paced, really, really interesting time. I'm surprised no one's written or fabricated a kind of mockumentary about it because, you know, it was rich with, you know, stuff that writers would really love. It was a very interesting place. It, it started falling apart just before I left. Uh, it got too big. The work was inconsistent. The quality of the work was beginning in my view to become far too inconsistent and and it was beginning to get stigmatized by by the smaller design companies that couldn't compete with it um, because of its profile and its PR and everything and those companies actually were in my view of a much higher quality they were emerging and I I wanted to be part of that and so when I left Conrad after the short stay I had there I decided that I would never have a large company. I would never be part of any form of, of business that required me to engage in politics or attend meetings that I didn't want to attend or, or waste my time doing things that I wasn't good at. Um, and so when I started my own company, I decided that I would, 
I would always keep it small, but I would I would make the the product better than 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 any other product that that I had been in, you know of any company that I'd been engaged with by just concentrating on the product and nothing else, not in growing the company, not in growing the you know the 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 size of the company or the amount of money that it was earning or anything like that, but just concentrating on the product. Because I had a view that if I did that, then then the company would attract good people, both clients and colleagues, as it, as they say in America. I completely agree. If you get the people right and the projects right, everything else will will follow. They're the most important things to focus on. Yeah. So you know that's kind of that's kind of how I got to where I got to. Um, you know, being taught by. Um, you know, some of the masters, I think. I mean, Rodney was an incredibly insightful man. Uh, Terence, as you say, had a very strong singular vision. Not, not a great human being, but nonetheless interesting. But it was really, at the end of the day, it was about people. And, and as I grew through those businesses, I realized how little I knew about the subject that I was working in. Um, and uh, I couldn't really ever become very good at it unless I kept doing it. And most people I know of my age who were there are no longer practicing designers like I am. You know, they've all gone off and become futurists or strategic consultants or some old bollocks. I, on the other hand, carried on working <laughs> as I do, as I do every day. And I'm, I'm getting, I'm, you know, I'm getting better at it. There's this idea of the portfolio career of, of switching around, and the, but the idea of mastery is somehow lost now, becoming a virtuoso. Just you know, but then that constant learning, having the humility to realize that there's always something new, there's always a different angle, there's always a different perspective that you can take, and there's always something you can learn. And I think that's the thing that inspires me as as well. There's it's not having the arrogance to think that you know everything. And I think that just makes you, uh, well, one of our maxims, one of our values at Sense Worldwide is, you know, don't be clever, be curious. Because, you know, we've worked with lots of people over the years who will spend an hour telling you how clever they are. And actually, it's the people that get challenged and stop what they're saying and lean in and start to listen. And it's the, you know, being curious. So don't be clever, be curious is one of our values that, you know, I think that is actually what makes you, well, I'll say great, it's what makes you good, because none of us necessarily want to be great, it's just to be really good at what you do. Um, and I think that, um, you know, being great, that's for other people who may want to be sensationalist about it. But it's just, it's just about being good. It's about being able to ask a, a better question. And, and like you said earlier on, being able to reframe stuff, being able to sort of question what has come before and what we're going to do here. It's an opportunity to do something better for humanity. And how do we do that? And what are those fundamental questions that we need to ask at the beginning when we've got the brief and challenge that brief and not necessarily take it on face value? So I completely, um, I completely see your, your view on that. Well, I think I think the, the the thing about about being a bit older is that when you start off in in design, at least, and I can't even talk about that because all I've done is that you tend to your clients tend to be other designers um, because you're basically 
trying to grow your own reputation, your own brand, you know, your own your own um, kudos within within the business. And so you tend to compete with other designers, and you tend to misguidedly, in my view, focus on 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 doing something better than them. So you're constantly looking at what they do. And um, I stopped doing that quite early on. I stopped reading design magazines. I stopped looking at design other designers' work. If I did ever see anything that I thought was really good, I used to go into deep depression for a day or two and get really sulky and then kind of snap myself out of it and say, well, I can do better than that. But it was always very much focused on other designers. And it, it, it took me some years to realize, probably only through doing work and seeing the results of it, that actually I wasn't working against other designers. I was working for the clients of my clients and and I wasn't even working for my clients um in fact I once said to someone a senior guy at Toyota you're not my client because he was disagreeing with me I said your your customers are my client and he got rather angry about that but I think as you get older you realize that um that the work you do can have some positive impact on people's lives and as you become more secure in your own uh I think you're able to do that and able to see that but it's when you're when you're younger and you're starting out, you're much more inward looking and you're much more self-centered because you're insecure. You know, you're trying to swim. But once you start swimming, um, you don't want to become a coach. And that's what a lot of designers do. They, you know, they they learn how to swim. And then before they become really good at it, they 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 want to earn more money. And so therefore they start running and coaching um, other designers when they're not ready to do it. So, you know, just going back to the Pentagram model, I, I have a tremendous respect for that company because they, you know, they, they've built a system where designers are nurtured, encouraged to keep on practicing um, until such time as they, they die. And I mean, you know, if you, if you take, you know, architects, for example, Frank Lloyd Wright did not design Falling Waters until he was 66. You know, Frank Lloyd Wright did not design the Guggenheim, you know, probably one of his other masterpieces, until he was 88. And and possibly he was in a wheelchair because, I mean, that that is, you know, the, the best disabled access museum on the planet, um, bar none. Um, maybe that influenced him and his thinking, who knows. But, um, you know, the genius that we all think of didn't start his career properly. You know, he was a bit of a hack until he was uh, until he was in his sixties. In terms of pentagram designers, the I think it's Alan Fletcher that who is one of the most notable um, designers from the pentagram group that I followed more than anyone else. And you know, he just worked and worked and worked. And in fact, I I mean, I I still. It's it's very difficult for me to find. Well, there are graphic designers out there who I think are on a par with him, like Milton Glaser. But you know his work as well. He just it was a simplicity that he arrived at at the end of the day, and just something that was very very human as well. And that and it's amazing because it it sort of it it doesn't you don't necessarily see that in the early part of their careers. You see that much later on, and when you look at the pentagram uh, annuals and books and the output of that it is a successful model and it's and it, and it hasn't been replicated all those very few organizations which have come along to try and change that um and it's and it's a it's certainly an organization that i've always um looked up to and and looked to for inspiration
Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. I mean, Alan Fletcher was, I mean, not only was his work simple, but it actually had, has, had, has an enormous amount of wit as well and humanity, as you mentioned. I think, I think um, you know, wit is something, you know, a lightness of touch, um, something that makes you smile uh, is something that, that, that we all forget on a regular basis. We're all trying to be serious um, far too often. And... Um, and, you know, I think I think you know humor and self depreciation is a, a really powerful quality, and and you know I don't take myself seriously at all. But I, I mean I take my work very seriously. I don't take many of um, the people I work with very seriously, and I would hope that they don't take me too seriously either. I mean, we always like to be in a situation with our clients. Um, in fact, we we have we have a maxim whereby. We say to our potential clients before before we decide to work together that they should do the barbecue test. Being Australian, we decided we've we've made it in, we've made an Australian version of it, of this this thing, and we say don't work with us unless you think you would uh, be comfortable having a barbecue with us sober. Sober is important. If you felt that at that barbecue you might be turning around to look for someone else to talk to, or a drink to catch. Uh, to carry on talking to me, then don't, don't engage with us. And and it's I use the same thing for for employing people. I don't look at their portfolios. I'm not really interested in what they've done before because it's almost impossible to know whether they did it or how they did it or what they did, whatever. And it doesn't really interest me. I'm only, only really interested in their character. And and it's it's a, it's a really good test. When we have worked with people who had failed it for one reason or another, we've always regretted it. But largely speaking, we we we've stuck to it. And and we only work with people who like us and whom we like and with whom we can have strong arguments and disagreements with our ego. So, you know, I think what Fletcher did is he took some of the ego out of, of the design, some of the seriousness out of it, and um, and humanized it. And that's, you know, on your earlier point, that's, I think you get to that as you get older. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested now in, in the effect that the work that we do can have on improving, literally, I know it sounds grandiose statement to say, but literally improving humanity. You know, I'm grateful to have clients that are thinking uh, about whether to use technology before jumping, you know, straight into it. Uh, I've got an, a lovely client at the moment, Australia Post, actually, you know, the biggest retailer in, in Australia in, in many respects, you know, they've got four and a half thousand stores. Um, and we're helping them reinvent themselves as a business. And, and it's delightful to talk to people there who are genuinely interested in the lives of their customers. I mean, most of them today, I had very early meetings with them because they're all out being postmen because it's Christmas. You know, the senior executives, it's, it's lovely. It's a lovely culture. And it's nice to work with people like that. I'm, I have worked with clients who, who embrace technology or who work fundamentally in technology. And so they think that that's the sort of be all and end all. But it's nice to see outside of that. And so whoever we work with, we like to try and find people who, who have a broader perspective than that which they just do or the brief that they've just given us. Because oftentimes the most important part of our job is, is not the result, but the challenge that, start, that happens at the beginning. You know, the challenge of the brief. I mean, some of our most successful work, which has completely reinvented convention in, in the way that things are done or displayed or whatever, by completely and utterly throwing the client's brief out. And the best briefs are, well, I mean, the clues in the word are, are just that, brief. Amazon have a, a wonderful 
technique, as, as I'm sure you know, for, of the press release, which is that if, if you can't describe the benefit of a project you're about to invest billions of dollars in as a three-paragraph press release, then it's not worth the attention of the chief executive and major shareholder. I, I've, I've tried to improve on that, and actually I've, I managed to get one brief um, down to one word. And I, and I continue to try and do that. I need to ask you now, what was the brief that you got down to one word? Well, it was working for an Italian supermarket called Esselunga. They were the first supermarket in Italy. They're, they're still the largest and cheapest uh, in Italy. Um, and they make a lot of their own stuff, but they used to do it behind, behind walls that you couldn't see. And so after we kind of spent some time exploring behind the walls and, and understanding their business... I went back to them and I said, well, really, we need to call this project Dimmi, which is Italian for, for Tell Me. And um, I said, well, really, all you need to do is not very much, but to actually just show people what you do and remind them that actually all the stuff that they're buying, even though it's incredibly cheap, is being freshly made. And so what we did was we... I mean, it's a classic example of reinventing normal. We looked at the supermarket layout, which is particularly theirs because they were so successful. They had millions of checkouts right the way across the front of the store, which is exactly the same as as was invented when self-service was introduced by Piggly Wiggly in Memphis, Tennessee in 1906. The supermarket has not changed its layout since then. And we said, well, this is a stupid place to put um, cash taking. Why don't we turn everything through 90 degrees, shove the, the, the checkouts up the side because they'll probably want soon be replaced with palm scanning and stuff and in their place in the window in the shop front build a glass box and put all the production teams the bakers the butchers the people who stuff sausages and boiled chickens and whatever all in one space on display where the checkouts used to be so you can see them as you come in and see them as you go out and that's reinventing normal that's challenging the way things were done and it's and one word informed everything and the word was tell me about it which is, it's kind of slang. It means dimmy. Dimmy means kind of tell me, show me, talk to me. But I went to them. I said, we should just use this word to inform everything we do. And they, they were up for it. So um, even at the checkouts, we actually put, we put cinema screens above the checkouts with live footage beamed from their factories, which weren't there, where they were making pastas and things like that. So at every point, we were entertaining the customer. And, and a little bit like, uh, who's the lateral thinker, Mr. De Bono, when he was given a problem of a building that was built with lifts that uh, didn't work optimally and people were complaining about the weights. Some engineers were engaged to kind of work out how much it would cost to put faster, quicker, more lifts in. And he said, stick some fish tanks in the lift lobbies, entertain people whilst they're waiting, and that solved the problem. So sometimes a piece of lateral thought that is seemingly ridiculous is the right solution. Just because it hasn't been thought of before doesn't mean that it doesn't devalue. It shouldn't be devalued by that. So um, yeah, I think that was uh, that was my favourite one. But I need to ask you about supermarkets. Are they a good idea or a bad idea? What's the future of supermarkets from your perspective, from a retail perspective? Well, like I say, when when in 1906, Piggly Wiggly, brilliant name, invented self-service. Prior to that, grocers, people used to go to grocers and give them a list and say, I need some sugar, I need this on the other. And the grocers used to fill that list and then ask you if you wanted to pay now or later, which was credit we now get charged for. And then also said, can I help you to your car with that? Or would you like it to, the boy to deliver it, which was click and collect or home delivery, which we also now get charged for. And they introduced self-service thinking it would make save them a bit of money. But what they didn't realize, and this is really reinventing normal, 
but the foresight to think about the decisions that you make. Because what they didn't realize is that as soon as you give customers the ability to choose their own things, then you're opening up your business to being invaded by other businesses who will provide them with options. And so self-service, basically, and the introduction of supermarkets, basically, is a really shit business idea. Because the the retailer is no longer a person who curates and chooses what he sells or she sells, but becomes a distributor for other people's products. And so Unilever and uh, I'm sure lots of businesses that you work for were invented as a consequence of an idea to use technology to make a more efficient business. Well, it didn't. It made it less efficient and it reduced the margins and it introduced a third party who also wanted margins, such as the supplier. And there was only one business on the planet that didn't embrace that. It was Aldi. As everyone went right and said, oh, yeah, that's good. And they had to get bigger and bigger and carry more and more overheads and more and more lighting and more and more heating and more and more car parks to be the distributor of another business's goods with no differentiation apart from some made-up fantasy that they created around their own brand. Aldi went the opposite way. And now everyone is copying Aldi. It's taken them 100 years to realize that actually having your own merchandise I mean, imagine, imagine if, if Nike sold, you know, someone else's gear. It wouldn't be Nike, would it? So, so why would supermarkets do that? And so I think what is going to happen in supermarkets, well, I know what's going to happen in supermarkets, is that more and more of them will be uh, cutting out the Unilevers of this world. Uh, they will be uh, concentrating on what they, a good retailer should do, which is having an opinion about what they sell and actually creating relationships with the people they, they develop that with. Um, and therefore reducing the cost of it and and um, making it more local because you know things will need to not be part of a large supply chain and get there um, economically, which is how you keep the cost down uh, another way. So the whole model is was was fraught with problems that weren't foreseen and, and in some ways you, you you wouldn't be able to foresee them, but you could have picked it up a few years in and it's taken one hundred and ten years for people to really realize it. But what's happened in, the, in, in that journey is that everyone's been cutting costs to make money because you can't have three people making, you know, having a benefit, the customers having a benefit at low prices, the supermarket making a profit and, the, and you know, the, the, the big brands making a profit. So you have to actually cut costs. So supermarkets are not super. I think someone was a marketing genius when they, they thought, well, this is a really shit idea. It's going to be really horrible. You're not going to have anyone to talk to. The grocer's not going to greet you. It's not going to be taken to your car. Um, you're going to have to serve yourself and uh, carry it home and come, you know, quite a long journey to get it. Oh, I know. Let's call them super. You know, this market that we used to go to that was actually where I grew up in, in Italy with my Italian aunt and had my cheeks squeezed and my bottom pinched and, uh, you know, was given a melon and prosciutto to, to eat and my aunt was flirted with. Uh, have turned into over-sanitized, over-lit, nasty, thematic, Disney-esque versions sometimes of markets gone by that all never existed. And and now we are, you know, the public is running the distribution scheme um, for, for these retailers who aren't even retailers, they're distribution centers. So the whole thing's going to be reinvented. And, I'm, and my mission, because and I, I work a lot in this category, is to is to help that happen, to make the purchasing and the engagement with food whether it's you know the purchasing and the sourcing of it, the stories that you tell around it and can and can tell after it, the experiences that you have there, you know, egalitarian because 
there's so much to learn from young, you know, from every age group, every different type of person. And a market is one of the few places where, because everyone has to eat, where they come together. So I think they need to be celebrated and we need to destroy what has been destroyed in the building of the supermarket over the last hundred years and find a better model. I'm not saying that large food distribution retailers will not exist. Of course they will. We need them. But they need to radically rethink the business that they're in and whether or not they will continue to be in it if they go on the path that they are going on. And, And that is a big challenge because they've got investments in property they've got investments in systems they've got investments in people and it's a very difficult machine to turn around but it will have to be because otherwise particularly with the pandemic and particularly with you know inflation that we're having now these businesses will not survive and eventually the the people who sell that who make the product will be selling it as you do in a market um there will not be a third party involved and that's because costs have to be low so so they will disappear unless they sell their own stuff. I think that's a great perspective. So just to segue now, if you could ask a question to the Sense Network, what question would you ask? I think I would put that in my pocket. You know, like when you went out for a night when you were younger, you used to stick five quid in your sock so that, when you were really drunk and you'd forgotten that the five quid was there, you might wake up in a gutter and be able to get a taxi home. I think I would use something as powerful as a question to the sense network. I'd keep that in my back pocket until I really needed it. But I think what I would probably do with it, because I'm inherently lazy, is is use the question to, to, to do all the legwork to justify some intuitive leap of thought that I had that needed some rationalization and some justification. And I didn't have the time or the energy or the inclination to to justify it because I just want everyone to realize that it's genius and see the logic. So I would say that question to, uh, if it's a freebie, if that's what you're offering me, uh, uh, to, to when I really need it. <laughs> I, you know, I think I think you're absolutely spot on with that because that's, that's often what it is because I think most thinking... It's lazy thinking. I mean, most briefs get written and there's a business problem and no one really takes time to think about a brief now or no one really takes that step back in order to make a leap forward. And yeah, I mean, so often if you do make that creative leap, we need evidence. And, you know, how can you you find that evidence without, you know, that's, that's coming from a place that, you know, if it is original and it hasn't been thought before, and if you have, as you said earlier, and think to sort of if you've rethinked something, you can't necessarily get feedback on that. You do need to turn to people who can see things differently and think differently. So, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to let you get away with that one, Mark. <laughs> well, I'm keeping it in my back pocket. So, I mean, you've offered me it, right? I'm going to spend it, but I'm just going to, yeah. I'm just going to keep it in my back pocket. I, th- I think when it comes, it's, it's going to be a good one. I think that's just, uh, that's been a great conversation this morning. And uh, thank you for sharing your story. And thank you for sharing your perspectives. I think that was, uh, that was awesome. Thank you so much. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me and thanks for hosting it. Thank you for listening to Extreme Perspectives brought to you by Sense Worldwide. We'd love you to join this conversation using the hashtag Extreme Perspectives. If you enjoyed it, leave us a review. 
the Sense Network collaborates with many of the world's most innovative companies to help them be more innovative. Join us at thesensenetwork.com or get in touch via email hello at senseworldwide.com.